TED Audio Collective. Hi, I'm Ben. I suffer from a condition called writer's block. It strikes when I'm at work. That's why I choose Canva Magic Write. It works fast, generating texts in seconds, thanks to AI. Common side effects include increased productivity, compliments from coworkers, feelings of satisfaction. Now I can say bye-bye to writer's block. Ask your boss if Canva Magic Write is right for you at canva.com, designed for work. Canva. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. What if comparing car insurance rates was as easy as putting on your favorite podcast? With Progressive, it is. Just visit the Progressive website to quote with all the coverages you want. You'll see Progressive's direct rate, then their tool will provide options from other companies so you can compare. All you need to do is choose the rate and coverage you like. Quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Comparison rates not available in all states or situations. Prices vary based on how you buy. Hello, everyone. You're listening to After Hours. I'm Felix. And I'm here. And it's the two of us. And Felix, spring has sprung, which means, have you finished your class? Oh, great question. I just taught my last class. Yikes. It's such a bittersweet moment. Yeah. On the one hand, you feel good about you covered a particular idea. You looked at it from many different angles and you feel like, okay, so now I've given the class what I can give. But also... You just grow fond of the students. Yeah. There's so many moments that I feel quite intimate. Yeah. And maybe even more so with this generation of students because they're not holding back as much, I think, as students used to. They're more personable. They often talk about experiences that they have had or family members have had. And so, really, you're building this relationship over time. And then it's this abrupt ending that, oh, God, the class is done, and I won't see them for a little while. Mm -hmm. And we brought topics, of course. Yeah. So I thought we could just catch up a little bit about Netflix. Oh, So yes. Netflix has just reported, but more generally, their market cap got cut by 75%, and now they've gone up by 80%, <laughs> and they've transitioned from having a founder be part of the leadership team and a co-CEO, and now they have a new pair of co-CEOs. So I'm just curious to get your thoughts about that transition and the whole co-CEO model generally. Yeah, super interesting. Yeah. And what'd you bring, Felix? I wanted to ask you about India. Oh. There's so much excitement about the Indian economy. It's now going to be the largest country by population size, yeah. very quickly eclipsing China. But also business is booming. The economy seems to be doing really well. And then I hear very contradictory things about yeah. the trajectory and what the future will bring. And I'm really interested in hearing your view. Well, I'm interested in hearing your view too, because I confess, as somebody who's attached to India and feels it emotionally, sometimes I think what I need most is a detached perspective. So we'll get both. <laughs> we'll get your perspective in mind. That sounds great. So me here, Netflix. What did you notice about their report? Yeah, so they just reported it. It's kind of early in the earnings season, but it was quite interesting. So they're going through this really remarkable transition. So first off, as backdrop, it's really been a roller coaster ride. If you've been a shareholder of Netflix mm -hmm. and you're thinking about them, which is they 
have lost maybe 75% of their market cap about a year ago, right at the beginning of that onslaught on the NASDAQ. But they have bounced back remarkably <laughs> by like 80% <laughs> in a way that some NASDAQ companies have as well. But what's really going on is also interesting just operationally. So they are doing two big initiatives, which is they are launching this ad tier. And people have gotten quite excited about this ad tier, which is a tier which would be a lower price tier but with advertising, massive new partnership with Microsoft to do that. And then they are launching and are figuring out how to think about password sharing, mm -hmm. which has always been a little bit of something that they haven't dealt with. And now they're thinking about it pretty seriously. What do the actual numbers look like? Well, mid single digits growth in revenues and in members. But there is still this tension between this remarkable promise of what they have, which is undoubtedly this incredible streaming franchise without real compare and with remarkable room to run mm -hmm, mm -hmm. because they still make up relatively a small fraction of viewing. At the same time, there are always these lingering doubts about <laughs> what the economics are and are they doing enough or what's going to happen with Apple and Amazon. So I'm curious what you made of the two tales that get told about Netflix and where we are today. You're so right. It's really interesting how you can look at the same company and even analysts who follow Netflix for a long time, they look at the same company and they walk away with very different views. What surprised me perhaps the most looking at the latest figures is more and more, and I never would have imagined that I would really say this, but more and more Netflix is looking like an old-fashioned television company. <laughs> it's not growing very quickly. It's four or 5% or so. But now it's made a remarkable turn towards profitability. So free cash flow jumped in the last quarter to about $2 billion. Guidance for operating margins is now in the 20% range. And you know, those are sort of the kinds of figures that you used to see from the television business. Right. Not much growth over time, but really profitable printing cash in so many ways. And I think there's an expectation that there's still a little room to cut expenses on the production side so that they have fewer really, really expensive productions that then basically break their budget. But overall, I think they're in remarkably good shape. And the one deep, deep, deep difference to the traditional television business is, of course, how global the business is, yeah. how they're now mixing both domestic successes that are really popular in the U.S. with global successes that are sometimes popular in the country where the content comes from, and maybe sometimes not even that. Yeah. So I'm thinking about shows that don't do particularly well in their domestic market, and then just as a result of the marketing power of Netflix, all of a sudden become global hits. I'm glad you brought up this global part of Netflix, because I was also struck about that piece of the puzzle. And you've emphasized in previous podcasts that ability to take money heist out of Spain and put it into the U.S. and how powerful that is. But the other thing they do incredibly well is use different markets as laboratories for big operational decisions. Mm. When you see what they do, for example... They are thinking about pricing and they will just experiment in markets. They had massive price cuts in India as one example. To try to rectify password sharing, they went to Canada and they ran a huge experiment and they learned about what they wanted to do when they launched password sharing more generally. Yeah. And it just strikes me that 
It's kind of what you would expect almost every multinational to do, but they have gotten so good at learning about markets and then testing ideas and then rolling them out more broadly. Mm -hmm. I think it's actually one of their fantastic strengths. So I love that piece of the puzzle too. But to your point, Felix, I think you're right. They look more and more boring. Their growth <laughs> is 4 or 5%. And here's what I don't quite understand, which is the story they tell is still one of there's so much room to grow. And yet, they're not really realizing it. Mm -hmm. And so I don't know how to make sense of the idea that they keep saying we are such a small fraction of the addressable market, yet they're growing in, relatively speaking, anemic ways. Now, just to be clear, password sharing can help. Advertising can help. But if member addition is just kind of grinding at like 5%, and by the way, that's globally, but even LATAM, emerging markets, they're not growing above 10%. <laughs> they're all growing in high single digits. That's the part I don't understand because the real promise of Netflix, especially with its valuation, which is $150 billion, there has to be some promise of operating leverage. Mm -hmm. Big mm -hmm. revenue growth, but costs stay relatively fixed, so it all goes to the bottom line. But I don't really see the operating leverage, Felix. That's the puzzle to me, which is yeah, it's looking good, like an old-fashioned TV thing, but A, is that good enough for that valuation? And then B, why isn't it growing faster? Mm -hmm. I just don't understand. I think there may be two reasons on the advertising tier. The really great news there is that revenue per user in the advertising tier actually matches and even exceeds revenue per user in the regular tier that they had so far, which is kind of amazing, right? Yeah. And there, I think the issue is mostly time. So they had to figure out the model. They had to build the business. And I think on the valuation side, so how much are advertisers willing to pay to reach Netflix users. I think that's amazing news. Now the question is just, you have to market something that you never had because right. you always had this price point around $10 that eventually turned into $16, $17. In particular in emerging markets also where Netflix was sort of seen as a Western luxury good. You now have a marketing opportunity I think that didn't exist before you had this ad tier. And I think the company says, and I sort of believe it, that this just takes time to now market to that particular tier and then get traction over time. Yeah. The second thing is, of course, that if the content costs don't increase with the number of members that you have, even four or five and maybe in an emerging markets, 10% of growth over time will produce enormous extra value because I'm basically rolling out the same shows to multiple countries. And as a result, on the cost side, not much happens, but I have these incredible economies of scale. Yeah. And I think taking these two things together, the ideas of important economies of scale, the attractive advertising tier, plus everybody else retrenching. Just think about what else happens in the streaming business. Basically, most companies that thought streaming was their big destiny now have second thoughts. I think taking these three things together, I actually do see quite a bit of room for Netflix. Well, I totally buy your first one. I'm not so much sure about the second and third. <laughs> okay. So the first one, which is the possibilities of the advertising tier are really remarkable. And we haven't even really talked about the particularities of Netflix's ability to target. Mm -hmm, Obviously, mm -hmm. the problem with broadcast TV historically is just the inability to target and to get demographics. There's a real possibility with Netflix, given what they know about your viewing habits, 
to really get higher prices and to get really into the advertising market in a way that maybe other parts of the advertising market are faltering on. Mm -hmm. So precisely where targeting becomes harder in other domains, they may become better. And that could give them actually really great possibilities. By that, I mean targeting in other domains. I mean internet targeting, search targeting. Mm -hmm. If all those things become a little sloppier and a little less effective because of privacy, then Netflix can kind of win. But the piece on content is, I think, the critical question, Felix, right? You mentioned they're forecasting maybe three plus billion dollars of free cash flow for the year. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's really because content spend is lower than it has been. They've been averaging around 17 and they're going to come in around 14 billion this year. So really, it's a function of what they can do on content spend (laughs) that drives that free cash flow number. So when that content spend ticks up, it kind of wipes out the economics. Now, similarly to your point, when that content spend can tick down. (laughs) (laughs) So you're really taking a bet in many ways on the ability of Netflix to manage content spend over time and do it in a very rigorous way and not suffer from the inflation of the $500 million Dave Chappelle deal. And I don't know, I'm not convinced yet that that is not something to really worry about. That's so fascinating that you're more worried about the economies of scale I have some nervousness around the advertising model. And the reason is that when I look at the recommendation engine of Netflix, Mm. it's not great. Yeah, You know the history of everything I've ever watched. And you're recommending shows that definitely after five minutes, I know, oh my God, I would never ever watch this kind of show. And so part of what's really interesting is there's something about the translation of my viewing history into other content that is particularly difficult. Yeah. So now the question is, if you have to translate a viewing history into car preferences, is that a really easy yeah. thing to do or is that really hard <laughs> to do, just like into content? And it might be that viewing data is messy enough. That's so interesting. That the yeah. translation is not, super great, in which case advertising rates might not stay where they are right now. Yeah. There's the other part of the story here, Felix, that I want to make sure and get your take on, which is the co-CEO piece of this puzzle, which is a leadership issue. Netflix has always had a very distinct management philosophy, and Reed Hastings, in fact, has written a book about it. Mm -hmm. But the co-CEO model is one that they're betting on big. So Reed Hastings, as he was transitioning out, became co-CEOs with Ted Sarandos, who was really the content person who really built this incredible studio and kept it going. And then when Reed Hastings stepped back as a founder and became a chair, and by all reports, somebody who isn't going to be overly meddlesome, he chose a co-CEO model. So now Ted Sarandos and now the tech person have become Mm co-CEOs. And I'm curious what you make of that model, because it's something which in many ways makes sense on paper, but we so seldom see it. What do you make of it as a leadership model? The objections that usually here are completely expected. Oh, you need one person who makes decisions. You need one person who bears responsibility. Coordination is really hard. But once you think a little more about how do executive teams actually work? Yeah. I'm not sure if we're looking more at a choice of title as opposed to a type of working relationship that is really radically different from what we would see in many other companies. In fact, 
the research that we have on this topic suggests that the co-CEO model does quite well in many organizations across many, many industries where there's maybe even an argument that it's a better model than the so one person alone who makes all the big decisions. Mm -hmm. But you see it a little bit in the research even. It's very hard to classify. Yeah. Because say, what if you're my COO and we're just working incredibly well with one another and we sort of make sure we're on the same page, we're sending the same message. In every executive team, there is this question of how well can you align? How well can you coordinate across the team? And Maybe co-CEO is just a way of saying, in our particular business, understanding the connection between tech and the studio is crucial, is absolutely important. And yeah. you're sending more a signal than you're saying something very substantive about the way the two people will work with one another. Yeah, I think it's a really a fascinating question because it's surprising how little we observe it in a way. My first instinct is, it's likely to be a binary outcome. Mm. By that, I mean it will either really not work or it could really work. <laughs> it's a very few <laughs> middle outcomes. So, for okay. example, SAP tried a co-CEO model That's and right. it didn't really work. And it was a little bit of an American and a European. And there was a lot of cultural issues with that story as well. But I think in the Netflix case, I think it can really work in part because the content piece of the business is so important the tech piece of the business is so important. Competencies are not likely to be bridged. Mm -hmm. By that, I mean one person to do both those things really well, like as Reed Hastings perhaps did, is unlikely. And so if you have two people who have that complementarity, I think it's a wonderful model. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and I think in many ways, I wish we would see it more often because I think it is a very interesting idea that can work when there is that complementarity, historic working relationship. These two guys have worked together for a long time. And then finally, I mean, I think we have to come to terms with the idea that the CEO job is enormous and yeah. <laughs> it's gotten more yeah. complex. Yeah. And so if one can figure out the rhythms and one can figure out the trust, it's just an incredibly powerful idea. Yeah, and I think this is a great point how CEOs have so many pressures on so many fronts. Yeah, And the idea that one person will be fabulous at all of these things is almost ridiculous. Of yeah. course, you're better, say, talking to Wall Street as opposed to maybe meeting with really big advertising clients and so on right. and so on. And so the idea to just be open about it and say, this can only work if, in fact, there is incredible collaboration, even at the very top. That's a message that I love about the role of CEOs and what they can do for their business. It also has this virtue, which is otherwise you run a runoff. Yeah. There's two candidates or yes. there's three or four candidates or whatever. And then like these people have to leave, basically, yeah. because yeah. <laughs> you didn't win yeah. the runoff and then you have to go somewhere else and you lose somebody who's really fantastic. Yeah. And it's not really clear that's a dominant outcome. If you have two people who are spectacular, why put your chips on one? Why force one out and lose that talent? Yeah. So it's not a very common practice, but it does strike me as a really interesting way to send a message to the organization, as you said as well, that responsibility is joint, that we are in this together. I think that's also an interesting piece of this. Mm -hmm. And of course, when it all flames out, it would make for a fantastic new Netflix show. <laughs> The co-CEOs. <laughs> You're growing a business and you can't afford to slow down. 
If anything, you could probably use a few more hours in the day. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens, with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate, no coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. Okay, Felix, India, what's on your mind? Yes, so you saw the news. Now India is going to have a larger population than China. But maybe even more important than that, in all expectation, the Indian economy will grow more quickly than the Chinese economy. So expectations are around 5 to 7% or so. By 2027, in all likelihood, the Indian economy will be larger than, say, the Japanese economy or the German economy. Right. That alone is really interesting, driven, I think, by three types of expectations. One having to do with there's going to be much more outsourcing and obviously in particular in services outsourcing, India has played a very prominent role. There's an expectation about an increased role for manufacturing also, in part having to do with the Make in India program that the government pushes. And then finally, an expectation that we will see a much larger middle class households say anywhere between ten and $30,000 per year in income that is going to propel the economy. And as I read the optimistic news, I was just thinking of you and I was thinking, well, I would love a conversation with me here. Am I looking at a great sales job? Like lots of people who are trying to make it really reasonable to think that India is the next big thing? Are there concerns? Is this a bumpy road or is this a foregone conclusion that India can play a much bigger role in the world economy than it has historically? What is your view? I'm so glad you brought this up because I too am dying to talk to you about it because as somebody who thinks about India and who loves India, it's sometimes hard to get that detachment. And in fact, Felix, we've rarely talked about India in the podcast. That's true, yeah. So as you're suggesting, it's a little bit of a tale of two stories. So the optimistic case is so spectacular mm -hmm. and relates to things you said, but it relates to something even, I think, deeper, which is we've had historically over the last decade, relatively strong reported growth. We have underlying demographics in India that are remarkable. Mm -hmm. So as we've talked about, there's much of the world that's aging and declining in population. And you have a remarkable demographic burst in India that could pay off in all kinds of ways. You have this remarkable effort that the government has pioneered on digitization that is really something else. Yeah. They have created a digital platform for all citizens that's underlaying this idea of Aadhaar, which is this unique number, but it goes to the payment system. It goes to the way they do tax collections now. So they've invested hugely in this thing. Mm -hmm. There's even more, which is there are more unicorns in India than anywhere else other than China and the US. So we had for a long time not seen entrepreneurial growth in India. And in the last five years, we've started to see these unicorns. All of this is giving rise to just remarkable amounts of pride. And then you put into that context, Felix, all the things you said, more outsourcing, more potential for manufacturing. And you can get really, really excited about India. <laughs> mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And yet, and yet, and yet. <laughs> and so it is complicated because India is complicated. So what is the complication? So the first complication is 
so much of India's growth and much of the future is predicated on the idea of services. Yeah. And services have been a part of India's success in the last 15 years, especially technology companies like TCS and Infosys. Mm-hmm. But the reality remains, from an employment perspective, they are small fry. And one big issue that you just have to confront is, can a country of India's size succeed without manufacturing, without a relatively labor-intensive base? Mm-hmm. And for the last 15 years, people said, oh, we don't really need manufacturing. And the answer is that's wrong. I think you need manufacturing going forward. (laughs) You need manufacturing in the employment base to actually spread and distribute that wealth and to have it go beyond metropolises. And you just can't have 100, 200, 300 million people involved in tech services. It's it's just not going to happen, especially with education levels being what they are. So the first big question mark is, can you do it without manufacturing? The answer is probably no. But then maybe that's the promise. With China becoming more complicated, perhaps from a manufacturing base, that's all the more reason, mm-hmm, Felix, to mm-hmm. believe in India because manufacturing will take off. And then the answer is yeah. And yet, and yet, and yet, <laughs> people have been talking about that. What that requires is remarkable infrastructure, which India is, I think, still short on. So if you mm-hmm. look at what happened in China, there had to be a remarkable growth in infrastructure to allow for that kind of manufacturing and to be the manufacturing base for the world, number one. And number two, that manufacturing base grew up at a time when global trade was growing, when (laughs) everybody wanted to outsource manufacturing everywhere, and I'm not sure the timing is the same. And then the final thing I'll say, Felix, is the big puzzle to me beneath all of this is you look at the aggregate data, it says what it says. But the really tough story here is in the corporate sector, which is, are we seeing great global Indian companies that are conquering markets around the world? And the answer to that is largely no. Mm -hmm. So you can think about TCS and maybe Infosys, Mm -hmm. but they're not innovating products in a tremendous way. They're not providing technology in the way we would think about. Their business model has remained the same, very successful. But we have not seen the emergence of a world-class Indian company that is taking on the rest of the world in a large way. The ones that we have seen, like Reliance, which is a remarkable story, Mm -hmm. like Adani, up until two months ago, (laughs) (laughs) have focused on the domestic market and have focused on basically expanding horizontally and taking larger and larger chunks of the Indian market for themselves, as opposed to globally thriving. Tata and Tata Motors are probably one of the better examples of a globally innovative Indian company with JLR. But it has remained a puzzle why we have not seen, and including in manufacturing, (laughs) that kind of large Indian company take the world by storm. So, Felix, I know that's a hugely contradictory, long-winded answer. (laughs) But guess what? India is a huge contradictory country. So (laughs) I'm curious what you make of it, because you're able to see this with a more detached lens. So my sense is you're exactly right to point towards what's the kind of employment that can give us something similar as what we've seen in the Chinese economy when hundreds of millions of poor people were lifted into the lower middle class and middle class. And the numbers are just striking. Mm. India has a workforce of about 400 million people. IT and IT services, which we talk about all the time, is 2 million people. Yeah. It's literally nothing. Yeah. <laughs> and I think the same is even true for manufacturing. And manufacturing is 35 million. So even if it doubles, it's going to be a long and complicated process to get there. 
we don't have that many global successes Indian companies that we can point to. That's sort of also true for China when you think about it. Yeah. And then, of course, complicated in the case of China, every time they have a company that is globally successful, we kill it off. We killed off Huawei. Right. We are killing off TikTok. Well, but like BYD, they are producing world-class cars at like $11,000 a pop. Yes. But I take your yes. point. China also suffers from this problem. Yeah. And think about BYD on the list of subsidized car manufacturers in the U.S. They're not on that list. Yeah. So there's something about mature markets not being quite as open. They're open to sort of the unknown companies that play somewhere in the value chain. I think that you can do relatively easily. But building a really amazing consumer-facing business, there's just not that many examples. Yeah. And maybe that's also not what you really need if the broad idea is sort of lifting most people out of poverty. Now, one of the things that I actually don't know much about is a component of China's growth was rapid urbanization. So essentially the story is you take poor farmers and they move to the city where there's manufacturing capacity installed and combined with that capital, their labor productivity spikes and that produces this growth miracle that we saw in China. Is that even possible in India? Could 100, 200, 300 million people move to the most densely populated areas? Yeah, this is such a fascinating question, Felix. And I think you're right to emphasize urbanization. And the answer is, it could happen, but in a different way. So first off, a lot of urbanization has happened in India. Already, yeah. What you're more likely to see is urbanization into second and third tier cities. Mm-hmm. And as you know, in these countries like China and India, you know, quote unquote, second and third tier <laughs> cities are like five, <laughs> 10 million people. But you could see a lot of that and maybe more of that, but not nearly in the way that you saw in China, because a lot of it is played out. Mm-hmm. But I think this is a sign of something deeper, which is, as I've thought about this problem, I think the China example is just completely misleading and elusive. Mm-hmm. So everybody wants to talk about China. Everybody in India wants to talk about China. And everybody wants to say, how does India become China? And how does India do what China did? And I've come to feel that China's path in the last 40 years is completely sui generis, will never be replicated again, and has very little instructive value for anyone else. It was just a very unique constellation of circumstances. Mm -hmm. 40, 50 years of repression, highly agrarian economy, massive urbanization, during a period of time of relative globalization and openness. You could do things there, and in a highly controlled regime, you can do things. But the reality is, that's not going to happen again, anywhere. Mm -hmm. (laughs) What most of growth looks like, the good outcomes... They're like Indonesia. Mm-hmm. And they're mm-hmm. really good outcomes. Yeah. But we should stop thinking about China as a model because it isn't for anyone. And it's not really one for India either. Yeah. So that's just a way of saying, will India grow remarkably over the next 10 to 20 years? I think so. Mm-hmm. Will it have anything of the scale and scope of China? You know, no. Mm-hmm. But that's okay. It can still be really remarkable. And you can bring a lot of people out of poverty just with solid 5 6% growth. And maybe that's what we should be thinking about as opposed to China. Yeah, let me maybe push back on two things. So one is you're exactly right about second and third and even fourth tier cities as when it comes to 
labor force availability, you'll be totally okay because there will be lots of people who can work in smaller manufacturing centers. I think one thing you can learn from China is that the infrastructure demands on that kind of a growth model are, of course, radically different. Yeah. So Hong Kong had connections to the rest of the world. You needed to connect Shanghai and Tianjin and other cities like that to the rest of the world. And then to a first approximation, a lot of infrastructure problems went away. If you had much more distributed growth with many manufacturing centers springing up around the country, then, of course, the kind of infrastructure that you need to make that competitive, that's very different. Now, I will say that India, for some reason, doesn't have a great reputation when it comes to infrastructure. But if you look at the cost of bringing manufactured goods out of the country, mm -hmm. India is sort of in the middle of the pack. It's not yeah. a really terrible case where it's impossible to get anything done. It's not fabulous. It's not among the leading economies. But it's average. And if, in fact, the government is now serious about making additional investments in infrastructure, I think that can work really well. The second consideration is, say we have an economy where we're growing 5%, 6%. Employment effects are largely elusive because we're growing in sectors that are just not very labor intensive. One correlate, and again, I would look to China to sort of see the longer-term consequences of that, are extreme inequality. Uh -huh. And over time, extreme levels of inequality, as we have seen in the China case, then has really serious political repercussions. And maybe even worse in the case of India, because if you look at unemployment rates, one of the things that is really remarkable is the unemployed are really young. Yeah. So if you look at the 20 to 24-year-olds, the unemployment rate officially stands at roughly 40%. The unemployed among the 25 to 30-year-old group is roughly 12%. So there's this very peculiar preference of Indian companies to hire older workers. And if we can't get the kind of job, the kind of growth that pulls out a lot of people, yeah. you will have a situation where we'll see incredible wealth among the well-educated. We see pretty okay levels of income among many people who are older. And we will have a next generation, many of whom are just missing out. You're absolutely right that when people look at things like average GDP per capita, it obscures yeah, it all this. Really mean much. <laughs> it doesn't mean anything, right? And you're also right to point to the political issues that are involved with that. So young people, and especially young men who are underemployed, are really complicated and problematic from a political perspective. And we're already seeing things like that happen in India. And they can be mobilized in all kinds of ways that are quite problematic. So I think you're right to put your finger on that. That's why I think this moment and these next five years are so critical. So Tim Cook was recently in India, launching the stores there. Mm -hmm. There are plans to be building the next generation of iPhone yep. in India. Now, I'm always loath to kind of think about one story like that as being important. <laughs> but <laughs> it will really matter if India can demonstrate the ability to do high-precision manufacturing at scale. Mm -hmm. If they can pull that off, then that can really be something special. Yeah. Yeah. But that's what this moment is about. I think that's where we're going to learn a ton in the next five years. Mm -hmm. And then mm -hmm. the second thing that's going to become important is 
you pointed to where the growth comes from. And part of where the growth comes from is, you know, multinational firms who look at the Indian market as being appealing again. Mm -hmm. And there was a moment 15, 20 years ago where India was a destination for multinational firms. Yes. That has kind of faded. And so that has to come back. Now, there are murmurings about that, but it has to come back in force. And when India becomes a real destination for multinational firms, and by the way, it has, for example, for Microsoft, there's a massive piece of R&D that gets done in India, which is super exciting and super interesting. But that would be the other thing I would look for, is to see when multinationals really start targeting India again. Mm -hmm. Those mm -hmm. two signs would tell me that there's something to believe in here, which is beyond just good, but like potentially great. Mm -hmm. <laughs> when those two things happen, high precision manufacturing at scale and multinational firms really getting excited, then you can really go to the next level, yeah. which I think would be incredibly exciting. Yeah. And yeah. it's just worth emphasizing how much human welfare is on the line with these kinds of things. Mm -hmm. There are literally hundreds of millions of people who can be lifted out of pretty abject circumstances when these things go right or wrong, as they were in China, Felix, and as you yes. know well. Yeah. And so it is a story that is just incredibly important for the world to see, and also politically important, because in a world where some people are wondering about China, India becomes a natural counterweight to that. Mm -hmm. In a world where there are concerns about autocracy, there's a really interesting schism in India about what Narendra Modi is doing. Is it autocratic? Is it not autocratic? What does it mean? And should yeah. we be worried about it? So for all those reasons, India is just going to be a place that I think is going to be critical to watch in the next five years. And we'll know, I think, how it's going to play out in five years. So it's a super fun story to watch. So this is just one of the many reasons I love talking to you so much. In a short period of time, I'm learning all of these really interesting things. And I have a new way of thinking about what might be happening in India over the next couple of years or so. And maybe the most important takeaway for me here is we should talk about companies in India much more often on the show than we have done in the past. Absolutely. And we got to do a podcast episode from India. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I would love that as well. All right, great. All right, Felix, recommendations. Ideally, it's a Netflix show based in India, if you can pull it off. <laughs> oh, almost half of it. It's a Netflix show. It's not a US show, but unfortunately not India. So halfway there. There you go. Have you watched The Glory on Netflix? No. Tell me, what is The Glory? It's a revenge drama. And as many Korean shows are, it's just like a mini series where there's 10 13 episodes or so. Mm -hmm. And it's about a child who's bullied in the worst way while she is in school. Mm. And the whole drama is a drama of the plan of a revenge. And I have to say, after the first two episodes, I almost thought I would not watch it because the beginning in particular is quite brutal. Mm. You see her being bullied and it's just heartbreaking. It's terrible. And then this incredibly elaborate plan to seek revenge, it completely fascinated me because on the one hand, you see how she makes progress and how she gets much of what she wants. But it also makes you think about what kind of a life is that? Who do you become as a person if seeking revenge is essentially who you are? Yeah. And in that sense, it's very entertaining. It has a lot of 
South Korean cultural elements that make it very interesting. And it has deep questions about who you become if, in fact, something really terrible happened to you early on in your life. So wow. completely fascinating to watch. That sounds great, Felix. And it reminds me a little bit of this beef show that I saw, which is also a little bit about revenge. Which I ended up watching after you recommended it. And I loved it. Oh, good. I'm so glad. I like Ali Wong anyway. Yeah, she's I think she's, she's great. great. And then it's so interesting how... It spirals out of control. It spirals. I yeah. love things that spiral yeah. out of control. So I want to double down on a recommendation that I've made in the past and expand it a little bit. So a couple of years ago, I recommended a book by David Gran called Killers of the Flower Moon, mm. which is this incredible true story about Native Americans in Oklahoma during an oil rush in the 1920s oh, who get killed off. I remember. It is like the best book. So here's my doubling down and tripling down. And I think you've done this before, Felix. I think you once recommended something before you saw it, if I'm remembering, like a Wes <laughs> I did, Anderson thing. Yes. <laughs> I'm going to do that because I don't care anymore. So, first, uh, Martin Scorsese is making that into a movie and it's done. And so it's coming out and it's clocking okay. in at three and a half hours. And I'm going to watch it no matter what. And I think you should watch it no matter what. And then, second, David Grant has a new book out, which I have like literally just read the first couple of pages of, and I'm going to recommend that too, because I'm tripling down on David Grant. And that is called The Wager, which yeah. looks like just to be an incredible story about a boat that sets off to find gold 300 years ago and what happens in that context. And he is just amazing at knitting together the historical record and retelling true stories with so much suspense oh, wow. that you can't believe it. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. so I'm tripling down on David Gran as uh, <laughs> the new movie, Killers of the Flower Moon, and the book, The Wager. There you go. So now we're transforming our recommendations to these are the kinds of things for which we have very high expectations. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And maybe we're exactly. right and maybe we're not right. Okay. Yeah, there you exactly. go. There you go. Yeah. So this is it for tonight. Thank you everyone for listening. This was After Hours from the TED Audio Collective. 